This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by Christ-Centered Parenting, a six-week video curriculum from ERLC and LifeWay. For more information, visit LifeWay.com. At the age of 19, Chelsea Patterson Sibolik was told that she'd never be able to bear children. For her, at this moment in her life as a Christian, it was the first time she experienced genuine sorrow, and it caused her to go back to her Bible, really cry out to the Lord and ask what his purposes were, and ask herself, could she continue to follow Christ? Well, today, Chelsea joins the podcast to talk about her story of infertility, of being adopted, and about what it's like to work in Washington, D.C. on public policy. Chelsea has a new book called Longing for Motherhood, Holding on to Hope in the Midst of Childlessness. It's a really important and good book that deals not just with the pain of infertility, but with suffering and sorrow and lament and also hope and joy in Christ. This is a book that I think pastors and church leaders, small group leaders, or just even ordinary Christians should really get and read and and uh, pass on to others. So we know how to bear the burdens of not just for those who cannot bear children, but for those who, like us, who are called to walk alongside those who suffer with infertility, giving us the biblical tools to weep with those who weep. I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Chelsea Sibolik. Chelsea, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. We've known each other for a long time, and I really want to talk about your book, Longing for Motherhood, which I think is a really important book. But before we do that, I would just love for you to share a little bit about your story and your background. Of course, you you were adopted yeah. from Romania, and uh, just maybe want to share a little bit of that. Yeah, I would love to. I um, Adoption is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I'm super passionate about it. Um, it's messy. It's beautiful. It's so funny telling this story. My parents got married when they were 21, not Christians when they got married. And they had both come from broken homes. And they, when they got married, said, we don't want kids. And they have six kids now. So I think it's kind of funny uh, how mm -hmm. the Lord changes hearts and lives. But mm -hmm. they got married, weren't Christians, a couple years into marriage the Lord saved them. They still didn't want kids. They lived overseas. They had this whole other life. And then in their uh, mid-30s, the Lord placed on their hearts a desire for children. And they tried. And um, actually, my mom had a couple miscarriages. And they were in the process of doing a domestic adoption. And it was taking forever. It was just taking super mm long and my dad had a business partner at the time and his business partner said you need to watch this documentary um and this interview on Sunday night and my mom's sister called and she said the same thing and so they were like I guess we should watch this documentary on Sunday night mm. and the documentary was about the Romanian orphans and Romania had been communist until uh, December of 1989, and then the dictator was killed, and the Western world went in to see kind of the state of this communist country. Mm. And there were 
thousands and thousands and thousands of orphans and they weren't true orphans they had parents but they were placed in state-run institutions because the they didn't have enough money to take care of their kids so they watched this documentary and the lord laid on their heart that this is where your children are going to come from and so international adoption was a lot easier back then so they hopped on a plane and adopted me and a little boy uh, from Romania and then uh, my other siblings are Russian so uh, very very interesting time around the Olympics (laughs) Mm. but um, yeah so we grew up my mom homeschooled all six of us, and we all lived to tell about it. Yes. Um, You're still here. You survived. (laughs) We all survived. Yes. (laughs) She was actually a teacher before Mm -hmm. children, so she kind of knew what she was doing. No, she really knew what she was doing. Um, Graduated from Liberty University, and I've worked in D.C. in a variety of capacities, both at a nonprofit, uh, did a couple years on Capitol Hill, had the opportunity to work on adoption and foster care policy and just got married last September. So yeah. a little bit about me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I've always known you to be passionate about, about adoption because of mm-hmm. your own story. And it's mm-hmm. so it's so interesting too to me when you think about like, you know, the history that was going on at the time of the fall of the yeah. Iron Curtain and, you know, Romania being one of the first countries to sort of experience that. And uh, the way that the gospel, you know, was able to sort of flood into Romania, mm-hmm. and having read about that, but then the very personal story of like you being adopted, yeah, from Romania. One of the things that I think you know is really, I think, encouraging about the last maybe ten, fifteen years is just the kind of uh, resurgence in. Uh, Christians caring about adoption and mm-hmm. and uh, orphan care and foster care. Are you encouraged by that? Absolutely. And I think something that I've been encouraged in those conversations about kind of the church engaging and Christians engaging is talking about it honestly. And mm. I think there can be a fear of if you talk about it honestly with it's good and it's bad that that will deter people mm-hmm. from adopting or being a foster parent. But I think, you know, if you think about it, adoption is a result of the fall. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, God created a family to be one woman, one man bearing children. And that's how that's how he created a family. And then the fall happened. And so it is a result of the fall. But it also points to the redemption that we have in Christ. And so I I think I've been really encouraged by um, some good honest conversations and mm-hmm. um, some, some good leadership on that. What are some, if I, if someone would ask you about adoption, what are some, I would say, myths that people might have mm. about, about adoption, but might even ask you as someone who was adopted, what are some myths that people kind of have or questions people ask you that maybe reflect misunderstanding of, of the experience, if that makes sense? Yeah. That's a good question. The number one question people ask me is, do you ever want to meet your real mom? Mm -hmm. And that's all they phrase it. Do you want to meet your real mom? Mm. And it's very well-intentioned. And I I know what they're getting at. Like, do I want to meet the woman who gave birth to me? Um, But what I I think is missing and and kind of a a myth or something I, I wish people grasped a little bit more is, you know, 
Christy Patterson is my real mom. Like she is the woman who raised me. She is the one who disciplined me, who loved me. You know, the woman who gave me birth is my birth mother, but you know, I'm a hundred percent grew up as a Patterson, you know, that those are my parents. And so I think making the distinction between a real parent versus an adoptive parent, it's a birth parent and a, a, a parent, you know, I think that would be something I, I would caution people to think about of the, those are your real parents, you know, just because you were adopted doesn't mean you're any less of a child than a biological child is. So yeah, that's, that's one thing I would have people think about a little bit more in depth. Mm, yeah. I think it is well-intended, but you know, if you've been in a good family and you view your your adoptive parents as your parents, you know. I, I don't know if you've watched the show This Is Us. Yes. So, so my, good. Man, my wife and I just love that show. We just recently caught up and gosh, it's like a tearjerker every night. It is. <laughs> but there's a way that they portray the real the real struggles of adopted, mm-hmm. you know, of of Randall mm-hmm. and dealing with all that Did that character resonate with you as you're as you're watching that show. Yes and no. I think in some ways part of the challenge with with that adoption story is there is a race component Mm -hmm. and with our adoptions, no one knew we were adopted unless we told them because Mm -hmm. we all look very similar. We uh, look similar to our parents. And so in some ways we didn't have that, that component of we look different than our parents. Um, But in other ways, I think, you know, I was adopted. I was three weeks old. So I was very, very young, but I have siblings who were adopted as, you know, a six-year-old. And mm-hmm. and so their experience was very different than mine just because they were older and so they have a memory, whereas I was practically a newborn. So mm-hmm. I have friends who have adopted children of other races, and I think their experience is, is different than mm-hmm. mine. And of course, a big part of your story that you've been pretty open and honest about is um, your own desire uh, for motherhood and, yeah. and infertility, which really is the catalyst for this great new book called Longing for Motherhood. So I, I first, before we talk about the book, maybe talk through the the process of being public and open about this. I mean, did it take you a while to think through what it's like to to share this with other people and being that, you know, sort of vulnerable that way? Yeah. It was terrifying, Dan. It it really was just because I don't know if I've told this story publicly, but the hardest day was the day after my book released into the world. Because even writing it was hard, but it was still, I had control over it and it was still mine in some way. But as soon as it was was out in the world, it was terrifying. But this was the book I had to write. And this was the book that's been on my heart for years and years. And I kept thinking like, I hope someone else writes this book. Like, there needs to be a book on this topic, but I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's me. And finally, I've, I felt the Lord kind of give me a piece that it was okay to start talking about um, my journey with childlessness. Um, I And I'll talk about this a little bit more in depth later, but I found out that I couldn't have kids when I was 19, which most mm-hmm. people experience that sort of news in the context of a marriage. So I've I've had that news for gosh, nine years now. Mm. Um, so when I, I talk, when I wrote the book, my heart has experienced a lot of healing, which I, I wrote about it in the heat of the moment. But I, I think there was something very sacred about 
that writing was just for me and God at that time before releasing it um, and refining it to be released into the world. Mm. I think it, it was terrifying, but the most impactful, you know, books or sermons or things I've ever read are when people kind of pull back the curtain and they're really honest. And so that's, that's what I tried to do is just be really honest about the hurt and the, I think it was Hemingway that said, write clear and hard about what hurts. And so that's what I tried to do and to write clear and hard about what God did in that as well. So Mm. it was scary. There's still days where I wish I could snatch it back and it could just be mine, but Mm. I really believe God called me and and Michael, my husband, to share this with with the world in hopes that it can put an arm around someone else and let them know they're not alone. And it's the kind of thing that, just in my experience as a pastor, but just in having friends that have struggled with infertility, it's the kind of thing that is hard to to make known. It's hard to share Mm -hmm. in, in community. So maybe talk about that aspect of it, like why it's something that's so hard to share. And I'm sure since the book's been out, you've had a lot of feedback from (laughs) from people who have had the same struggle. Yeah, yeah. I think you hit on a huge point of it is really difficult to share. And if you think about it, when someone has cancer or something like that, which is horrible and I would never wish that on anyone, but it it is a very visible struggle. And so people kind of remember to text you and ask how you're doing or bring you a meal or write you a card or something like that. But infertility and miscarriage were even secondary infertility, which is you've had one kid and you can't get pregnant with a second one. Or single women that want to be mothers, it plays out in so many different ways. But I think no one knows if you don't tell them. It's it's something you could keep completely to yourself for the rest of your life. And I, I think, and I, I talked a lot about the church in this, but I think there's some there's some shame in sharing that you're struggling to get pregnant or that you've had a miscarriage. Um, again, going back to the way God created humanity, like God's original design for a woman was her body is created to have babies. And so when that, when, we're living in fallen bodies and that's not happening or it's not happening quickly or like we wanted to. I think there can be some shame in that. And it's almost like we're pressing up against that paradise lost of this is not Mm. how it's supposed to be. This is not how God created Mm. our bodies to operate, but we're we're living in a fallen world. So I think there's a million reasons why it can be scary and tough to talk about. And a little uh, bit lonely, I, right? Like, yeah, yeah, very lonely. <laughs> one of the things I just love about your book is, I mean, you are talking about the very specific struggle that you have with infertility. Mm-hmm. And I do actually want to circle back around and you know, ask for advice on how Christians can come alongside people who mm-hmm. struggle and really bear those burdens well. But one of the things I love about this book is that you really are, in a sense, talking about suffering I mean, how to trust God in the midst of suffering. I mean, that's really a good percentage of what you're doing, you know, sorrow and suffering that really, I think, can speak to people regardless of of the nature of their suffering. But mm-hmm. um, it seems to me like for you, the Christian gospel was really a balm for your soul through, through this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was... I don't think I shared this when I was sharing my story in the beginning, but I grew up in a very Christian 
household and Mm -hmm. was the kid that prayed a prayer at age five and had Mm -hmm. kind of always been a Christian type thing. And when I went to the doctor's office and was told I couldn't have children, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever experienced suffering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if a Christian lives long enough, they're going to have that moment they can point to of this is the first time I've ever experienced suffering or suffering that's hard enough to make me kind of sit up and pay attention. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, someone said a mean tweet about me or something like that, just real suffering. And I, I came to a crossroads in my faith and really sat down and tore apart the Bible and thought, am I going to, I truly thought like, am I going to keep following Christ? Because this feels completely unfair. Mm. I've done nothing to deserve this. Like I've always tried, you know, for the first time in my life, two plus two wasn't equal four. Mm. Um, I've tried so hard to be a good Christian girl. This isn't fair. Where's God? And all the, the normal things that come up when suffering occurs. I really sat down and thought, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible and kind of make a decision of if I want, do I want to keep following Christ? And as I read the Bible kind of through the lens of my suffering, I came to realize that A, God's big enough for me to share all those feelings with him. If you look at the Psalms, there's some really dark Really dark stuff. There are. I'm going through the Psalms right now and it's yes. like some dark stuff. Yeah. Some really, I mean, just heavy, dark things. But as I was reading, that told me it was okay and God was big enough for me to take the dark things of my heart to him. Mm. And that's what I did. <laughs> I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And as I kept reading the Bible, I got to the gospels where Jesus is, I mean, basically talking about what it means to be a follower. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. And that's going to include death. And that's going to include mm-hmm. sanctification. And I, and this was God's grace. He kept me close. But just he revealed to me that we're not going to get everything we want on this side of heaven. And, you know, I may never have an answer, a sufficient answer to me of why God allowed childlessness to be part of my story but that's okay. And I don't Mm. need that. And even if he gave it to me, it wouldn't fill the deepest part of my heart. And Mm. so just realizing this, this is a cross, the Lord's, you know, place in my life, but deeper than that are his everlasting arms. And so I guess it all points to God's, God's big enough to handle our grief and our suffering. And we don't have to put a, a little red bow on it before coming to God, or we don't have to clean ourselves up. It just, I'm grateful that he's big enough. Mm. You know, it does seem like growing up in the church the way I did, and I'm sure the way you did, that sometimes we don't really allow enough space for Mm -hmm. lament and suffering. You know, that on a typical evangelical worship service, it's just very triumphant all the time and just Mm -hmm. everything's upbeat. And and actually, you know, we need some of that because we have a triumphant king, but it doesn't seem to reflect what the Bible does, that space is for lament and and suffering, right? I mean, I'm I'm always thinking if you just got the news that you couldn't bear children or or you suffered a loss and you go to church on Sunday— is there room for that person, yeah. you know, in the in the worship and, and what we're doing? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you felt that way a little bit. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I 
I actually found out um, because I was in college at the time. I had gone home to North. I grew up in North Carolina, mm-hmm. and it was over Thanksgiving when I found out. And I was there for Sunday worship that Sunday, and I went to church that Sunday, and it was baby dedication, mm-hmm. and it was five days after I found out, and just stuff like that. And and that's a good thing and a, a wonderful thing. We should be celebrating. But I think, I, I think what a lot of churches can make, how they can make space for, for kind of that tension is, and I've talked a lot about you know services such as Mother's Day or or whatnot, and I think acknowledging that tension is so helpful. You know, in Romans where it talks about the marks of a true Christian, um, it says rejoice with those that rejoice, and we are like you said, really good about that. that yeah triumphant songs, the celebrations, but the very next phrase in that verse is weep with those that weep. Mm. And so I feel like just acknowledging the tension, you know, in a Mother's Day service, celebrate the mothers. That's a good and a wonderful thing, but acknowledge the tension of those that grew up without mothers or have bad mothers or long to be mothers and just kind of acknowledge the tension of a broken world and um it, this this life is so full of tension and the already and the not yet and the weeping and the rejoicing and and so um yeah i i would love to see churches kind of make room for the language of lament and i want to recommend a book because it's one of the best kind of gems i've ever found on lamenting and it's called a sacred sorrow and it's written by Michael Card, the mm. Christian musician. I love Michael so Card. I, yeah, I stumbled upon this book, and it's just the most beautiful, honest book. And so, anyway, I'd recommend that to your your listeners. So you talk about suffering. I love the way you, that you deal with it honestly and biblically, and rooting it in the human experience mm-hmm. that's described in Scripture of, of a fallen world, and that you you also talk about hope. Like in the midst of all this despair, you do talk about hope, and uh, speak a little bit about about hope when when you've got news that uh, you really you really didn't want to have that seems unfair like this. Yeah, oh, so much to say. I think number one, it's a process, and everyone's different. But when I first found out, I um, and maybe this is just the church culture I grew up in, but I thought I have to quickly get to hope and it has to be a straight line. Mm. And, um, you know, Christians are hopeful people. And at first I was trying to rush myself through the grieving process. But as I gave myself time, I realized that hope is not a straight line. (laughs) It's all over the place and it's messy. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> and um, so it definitely takes time and it's not a quick, you know, there's no quick fix to hope or to to that. But I, I think several things. Um, hope is from God. And so I think we should be bold when we're praying for ourselves, if we're in the midst of that or praying for someone else um, that's in the midst of suffering, that God gives hope. And and so I think we should be really bold in asking for that. And I think too, and I want to be careful not to be too cliche, but the biggest the biggest thing I can say that's given me hope and that I think would give anyone else hope 
is constantly redirecting our gaze to Christ. And, you know, when we fix our gaze on Christ, we see the man of sorrows, but we also see the last few pages of Revelation where he promises to wipe away all of our tears and our trials have an expiration date. And in the middle of them, it can feel like they're going to last forever, but they do have an expiration date and they will, they're mortal. We are not, you know, we're immortal creatures that are going to spend our days with Christ. So just kind of reminding our souls what we know to be true and clinging to the promises of God. And when I first started sharing uh, with a small group of friends or, or whatnot, a lot of people kind of pushed back on me and they said, well, Chelsea, you just need to pray more or have more faith or this or that. And it, very prosperity gospel. But mm-hmm. to push back on that, like children are not a guarantee. Like right. they are not a promise of God I can claim or you know, and neither like neither is marriage or neither is a well-paying job. Or, you know, these are good gifts, but they're not promises to claim. <laughs> and so that just um, drives me crazy. Oh, me and too. I think people mean well, but it's really hurtful when mm-hmm. people are lamenting of you just gotta have enough faith and this will yeah. happen. And yeah. really I think missing the story that, you know, we may get healing. Mm-hmm. In this life, we may not. We may get that prayer answered in this life, but that the ultimate healing comes at the resurrection, you know, yeah. when yeah. our bodies will be made whole. And mm-hmm. it, But it just speak to how that is really actually dispiriting for, for people suffering, right? I mean. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think it can make you look at yourself and be like, well, what's wrong with my faith? Like, what is, yeah. what do I have that they don't, or what I don't have that they have? And um, I think it can really make us question ourselves and our relationship with God. And it really is well-meaning. Um, and, and I think people that say that haven't suffered. Mm. And, and that sounds kind of harsh, but they really haven't gone through that wrestling and that reckoning with God of God's on the throne and we are not. And so I think it was Beth Moore that said, uh, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar and mm-hmm. we keep one of crawling off. And, and, you know, like you said, we might get healing and we might not, but what our trials can do is to teach us to long for the deliverer more than the deliverance or the healer more than healing. And so, again, that's where focusing your eyes on Christ really does really does make a difference. Mm, that's really good. So I, I do want to pivot and just ask, you know, for pastors and church leaders who might be listening or just, you know, ordinary Christians, maybe, maybe there's someone, we, we've spoken a lot, I think, to people who might listen and suffer from infertility, but let's say that's not something we suffer with, but there's someone in our small group that is, or a neighbor or a friend um, mm-hmm. what are good and constructive ways to help bear the burdens of, of someone who's going through that? Mm, the best thing I would say is, well, there's a couple, but I would say, number one, don't shy away because it, it could look messy or um, don't don't shy away from that suffering. And, you know, I really struggled writing this book because my experience is mine and childlessness takes on a thousand different forms and there are thousands of different stories. And so I really struggled trying to write this book when I knew 
someone could read this book and it could be misunderstood or all these different things. And so um, press into the pain with someone. And um, so I think, you know, if a pastor or a church member or elder or family member, whomever wants to walk well with someone experiencing childlessness, you know, they're going to know that person and know if it's helpful to continually ask questions about their how they're doing or to give them space or to do this or that. And so just knowing the person you're caring about. And number two, um, kind of zooming out a little bit, you know, even if a pastor has never experienced infertility or a miscarriage, chances are they've experienced an unfulfilled desire. And so they can kind of put themselves in, in the shoes of it's, not having a child or, or losing a child in a miscarriage is an unfulfilled desire of being a parent. And so, you know, in, in some ways we've all experienced those unfulfilled longings of this Christian life. So I, I would say we all know what it feels like to not have everything we want. And we can minister out of that place of tenderness. And even if we've never experienced it, out of ministering out of a place of tenderness and putting ourselves in those shoes as best as possible. And a third thing, and I, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but just be careful about how you structure church services. And I'm speaking to pastors and elders, but I went to a church for a number of years that used to invite couples on stage on Sunday nights to announce their pregnancies. Um, mm. And they did the same thing with engagements and it goes back to that tension of rejoicing with those that rejoice, but it was so harmful where week after week after week, someone would announce they were pregnant. And for someone that's trying month after month after month to get pregnant, that's just, it's hard. And it's kind of a reminder of what you don't have. So I just think carefully about how you structure a church service. They've actually stopped doing that, which I, I think is helpful because it's caring well for a wider, wider group of the flock and the body. And, you know, those new, new parents are going to have people to rejoice with them and they're going to have small groups and whatnot. So just being careful. I shared the stats in the book, but approximately one in 10 couples struggle with infertility. Mm. And so statistically, if your church is larger than 10 couples, 20 people, there's going to be people struggling with mm. infertility in your church. So I, I really think pastors need to think well about structuring their services and, you know, what they pray about, what they joke about, just things like that. Mm. Mm. That's so good. And of course, the first piece of advice is get this book for the couples in your church. That's the <laughs> yeah. first thing to do. Read through it as a pastor or leader or small group leader, but then get it for your your people. The last thing I want to talk about before we, we go is you live in D.C., you work in, in Washington, D.C., and you have for a while and uh, have worked on the Hill uh, in public policy, a number of things. And uh, talk about just the, I think a lot of people who are not familiar with or you know, don't travel to D.C. or don't know people who work maybe on a congressional staff or a think mm -hmm. tank or, or in the administration, I think there's this perception that, you know, D.C. is this like swamp and it's this godless place. But one of the yeah. things that really encourages me when I go is actually how vibrant the Christian community is there. So maybe maybe talk about what it's like to be a Christian working in politics, uh, on policy, 
kind of what that experience has been for you? I love that question. You're right. I think people have this perception of DC as completely like wild west doing their own crazy thing. Um, and before I moved to DC, a lot of people warned me of Chelsea, it's going to be so dark. You're you're really going to suffer. It, it's just going to be dark. And, and anywhere in the world can be dark, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And when I moved here, I, like you said, I was so surprised that there were really, really good churches, that there were Christians in every level of the government and the administration, and that there were people on the other side of the aisle that I disagreed with on some some issues, but they were Christians and they loved the Lord and they um, were serving him passionately. And so I, I just, I, I think it's not as wild or dark as people mm-hmm. give it credit for. Um, you know, like I said, any, any place in the world is dark if they don't have the Lord. And so, um, I would just encourage people that there are so many good people in DC that love the Lord, are following Him, are mm-hmm. really seeking to use their gifts and talents for His glory and human flourishing. And I've been really encouraged. It's been interesting. There are certain times where I'll be working on an issue or whatnot. I was working on an adoption policy recently, and had been interacting with a point of contact from the state department. And I went to a Friday Bible study uh, a couple months ago and ran into this guy there and I didn't know he was a Christian. He didn't know I was. And so it was just one of those like, Hey, I've worked with you for a year on this policy and you're a Christian. And so it was just a really sweet moment of kind of, Hey, you too. And, um, and those things happen all the time. Yeah, one of the things I'm I'm surprised as you are, I, I guess it's just not surprised but encouraged by, is as you said, there's Christians in all levels. You know, it's not uncommon when I'm in DC having meetings everywhere. It's like, oh, yeah, this person who's working at this media institution, oh, they, they go to this church and yeah. they're a real strong Christian. Or this person that's uh, on this congressional staff, or this person that is at this think tank, or working in some ex- executive branch, mm-hmm. and uh, it does seem that. You know, doing ministry in DC, there's a unique way of ministering yes. <laughs> to people who work in such a high pressure environment, who are always having people, you know, business cards and trying to hit you up for something. And is there a unique ministry opportunity, I would say, for churches in DC to minister to people who work in such, you know, high pressure environments? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the churches I've seen that have done it the best. You know, I've I've been to a church for a couple of years in DC and it's a level playing field. You know, I think I think it could be a temptation to do ministry or in a church to kind of in James where it talks about like rolling out the red carpet for certain people. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing ministries and churches level, you know, an intern on their first day is cared about the same way as a congressman who's been there for 30 years. Mm. And so um, DC, DC is very (laughs) power hungry and uh, people wear their jobs um, like a badge. It's, It's a badge of honor of what you do or who you know. And so 
this might sound very countercultural, but one of the best things or the best ways to minister is to remind people to be humble. And humility is not a prized virtue in this city. Power is. And so just reminding people who they are and and their humanity and to, to be humble. And I think uh, those are the ministries and the churches that I've seen that have really done well in ministering to a very unique uh, group of people, but just reminding them that it's a level playing field. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and, mm. and that's how we should treat each other. And it does seem like people just need care Yes. <laughs> rather than to be seen as, oh, that's congressman so-and-so, mm-hmm. but just need care as humans, to see them mm-hmm. as whole people. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's it's interesting to see how, and good to see how the churches in D.C. really do that well. Well, uh, Chelsea, I really appreciate you joining me. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. And I really want to encourage people to get your book, uh, Longing for Motherhood. It's available. Uh, we'll have a link on our show notes page, but it's a really important work and and I uh, hope that a lot of people uh, get it in their hands. Thank you so much, Dan. If you're a parent, as I am, undoubtedly you're facing questions about how to explain issues like sexuality and gender and technology and race and identity to your kids. It seems like the world in which we're raising our kids has gotten a little bit different than the world in which our parents raised us. How do we tackle these important questions and train up our kids to love Jesus and love the Word and to live on mission in their day? Well, the ERLC and Lifeway Christian Resources has teamed together to bring you Christ-Centered Parenting. This is a unique six-week video curriculum that is specifically designed to help parents, youth pastors, anyone in a position of influence over children to really help answer those difficult questions that our kids have. We brought together experts from around the country, including Bible teacher Jen Wilkin, Pastor Ray Ortland, Dr. Russell Moore, Trillia Newbell, and many others to sit around a table and to really think through some of these difficult and important questions. It also comes with a very comprehensive study guide that is age-graded for each level of your child's development. So I encourage you to check out Christ-Centered Parenting from ERLC and Lifeway. You can go to lifeway.com or your nearest Lifeway Christian store to purchase your copy today. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.